You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Today's scripture is going to be from Acts, and it's chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Elin. Oh, it's okay, guys. Okay, I was going to say. Okay. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day, the fellowship of the believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for... Uh, just our congregation, um, our family here. Thank you for Waffle Day. Thank you um, that we have Andrew giving us the message, and I pray that our hearts would be receptive to what is uh, taught today, and just bless our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to try to answer the question, an important question for Christians to sort of reckon with, and that is, what is a church? What is a church? What is it at its core? Uh, that's kind of what I want to get at this morning. And it was helpful for me this last week to kind of think about what it isn't, um, especially as that relates to what it's commonly associated with. So for like example, last week, I think we pretty much determined, didn't we, that a church is not a business, like with a marketing strategy and that kind of thing. Maybe a church has a budget, maybe it has to, the leaders have to manage resources. We'll see that in Acts chapter 5, it's kind of alluded to here even. Uh, But it's not a business. A church is also not a building, right? A a church might meet in a building, a a church might own a building even. They they met in a temple, so that's a, a building, like... They met in homes, those are buildings, right? So the church is not anti-building, like we're not trying to, hey, let's think about creative ways to meet outside, like that's not what, you know? But a church isn't a building, right? A church is also not a political organization, right? So the church might have influence with regard to specific topics that are covered in politics, but we're not a political organization unless you want to point out, and in this way we are, we have absolute allegiance to the absolute monarch, King Jesus. Maybe in that way, we, we would say that we're a, a political organization or movement. Another thing that I was thinking about that we're not, a church is not a social reform movement. Now, hopefully, when people are part of the body of Christ, they are reformed by coming into contact with Jesus Christ as he changes them from the inside out, and they will go out into society, and if they have influence, you know, you could see maybe from the ground up, maybe in that kind of a way, but not, not really from the top down, though. That's, that's not what primarily church is about. So that, that was helpful for me as I was thinking about this question to, to think about what it's not, especially relative to what 
some people associate church with. But that still doesn't get us there. The question remains, what is a a church? Now, last week we saw how 3,000 people um, gave their allegiance to King Jesus in repentance, right? And then they declared that allegiance how? Through baptism. They identified with Jesus through baptism. And what we have in our passage today is we get to see how this sort of newly formed church, pretty large church, if you think about it, of 3,000 plus people, like what were they about? Like what did they devote themselves to? So listen how the passage starts again. Verse 42, there it says, and they, so we're talking about these 3,000 people, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so one of the things that we're going to see in this passage is an answer to this question, what is a church? And I think if you look at last week and you look at this week's passage, the answer that the book of Acts so far is giving us is that a church consists of a community of persons who have given their allegiance to King Jesus, but they are also continually pursuing two things. And I'll show you how I'm categorizing these things here in a minute as we go along, you'll see. A shared understanding of who Jesus is, they're continually pursuing that, and then they're continually pursuing a shared life in Jesus. So one of the things that a true church continually pursues is a shared understanding of Jesus. Now, the way that our passage talks about that is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, to get a sort of handle on what is meant by that, uh, there's kind of two other questions that we need to try to answer. One is, what is an apostle, and what did they teach? So when we think about what an apostle is, that word apostle kind of at its most basic level, refers to a messenger who is being sent uh, with authority, someone who is being sent uh, by someone in authority, like an envoy or a delegate or a representative. There's a sense in which they, uh, they have a certain amount of authority themselves because they are representing this authority that is sending them. Now, in the New Testament, there are several places where this word is used in sort of a non-technical kind of way. Sometimes it's translated with the word messenger, as it is in John chapter 13, verse 16. But the idea is that this person is being sent by someone with an authority. Now, in that non-technical sense, you might argue that all of us in the room, if you know Jesus Christ, there's a sense in which we are apostles. We are sent ones following the pattern of Jesus who himself is called an apostle in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Now, with that understanding, that makes sense of what Jesus says in his prayer in John chapter 17, verse 18, where he says, just as I have been sent by God the Father, so he is someone who is being sent by an authority, and in a certain sense, Jesus is sort of like this first missionary leaving heaven to come to earth, incarnational, very, quite literally, incarnational ministry that we pattern our lives after. But what does he said? Just as I am sent, the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Now, this, this verb, send, in both of those cases, is the verbal form of our word, apostle. Right? 
So there's, there's a sense in which this is used in a non-technical sense. But most of the time what we mean, and most of the time the way that it's used in the New Testament, is in, in a more technical sense, referring to the office of apostle. And that um, sort of maybe title, let's say, is given to those who meet certain criteria. And really they're basically two. The first criteria, and the order doesn't really matter, but the way I'm conceiving it, is the first criteria is that these are people who have witnessed the resurrected Christ. They've seen the risen Jesus. They saw him, right? They, they even have touched him. They've eaten meals with him. There's all these appearances that they had with him. So that's kind of one criteria. This is, a, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Peter is kind of outlining this criteria as a way to think about who might replace Judas, for example. So that's one criteria. But then a second criteria is that Jesus appoints them to that position, right? So we see that in Mark 3 and in Matthew chapter 10. So an apostle is someone who is appointed to be an apostle, and they have seen the risen Christ. And most of them have seen Jesus' whole ministry from the time of his baptism. They've been with him. They've been around Jesus for a long time. And so they carry with them, with this appointment, this message regarding who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. Now, that message is validated by the, performing, the performance of signs and wonders, right? And so we see that even alluded to in our passage in verse 43. It says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Right? And, and you see that idea, that will come up several times during the book of Acts. Um, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he says that this is actually one thing that distinguishes a false apostle from a true apostle. A true apostle performs these types of signs, and that gives validity to his message. So this is a pretty important um, position to be an apostle, especially in the early church. In fact, what Paul will argue in Ephesians 2.20, is that the church is, is founded upon, the foundation of the church upon which the church is built is the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So that's Ephesians 2.20. So this position is important. And part of the reason why it's important is because of everything that we have already said. They, they are sort of the guardians of and the communicators, the official communicators of the gospel. They're not the only ones allowed to talk about the gospel. It's not about that. But they are sort of officially the guardians of what the gospel is because they walked with Jesus. They saw him risen from the dead. They received teaching from Jesus. They were appointed by Jesus. And on top of that, Jesus told them, right, and there's all kinds of implications that I'm about to tell you for us with regard to this, but he specifically told the apostles, hey, look, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you and he's going to lead you into all truth, and he's going to bring to your memory the things that I said. Right? And see, upon that, that promise of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles, that's actually where we get our New Testament. Right? So the early church, early on, they began to recognize the voice of their shepherd king. Right? The sheep recognized the voice of the shepherd, right? in the writings of the apostles and those closely associated with the apostles. And that's how we get our 27 books of the New Testament. It's, it's the apostolic teaching is the New Testament. 
So, okay, so that gives us a rough sketch of what an apostle is, but what is it that they taught? If you look throughout the book of Acts, and this is just one way of kind of trying to determine this, and you look at what was preached by the apostles, you see these repeated themes that keep coming up that are mostly having to do with the identity of Jesus. Um, now, a lot of these themes were introduced already to us by the apostle Peter in his first sermon. Right? So he tells us a couple of truths about Jesus. One is, part of the apostolic teaching, is that Jesus is king. Right? Now, it, it might not seem like he's king at first when he's hanging on a cross. There's these other governing authorities that have, let's say, put him there. But, you know, Acts 2 already told us earlier that actually God, the Father, was behind even all of that. Right? But in their sin, right, the, the Jewish leaders and, and, and the Roman Empire, you know, represented by Pontius Pilate, they put him on a cross, but that wasn't the end of the story, right? God reversed that, the sentence of the lower courts, and he, he was raised from the dead. And then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and therefore he was declared to be Lord and Christ, right, the anointed king. Right? And he's coming again with that authority as judge, to judge the living and the dead. So what a part of the apostles' teaching is to say Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the king. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that Jesus is Savior. Right? He, and actually, those two ideas are perhaps more closely linked than we think. Right? It's as a result of this authority that he has that he now can offer his people salvation. He offers them the forgiveness of sins. That uh, takes care of the sin issue because he hung on the cross for our sins. But then he also offers the Holy Spirit. He has the, he has the authority to give us the Holy Spirit, which changes us from the inside out. And in this way, all those who turn to him and submit to him as the king, they receive these benefits from Jesus regarding salvation. And so to kind of summarize the apostolic teaching is to say, look, Jesus is king, and Jesus is savior. Now, again, this message is, is validated that through the performance of signs and wonders. It's authenticated in, in that way. And so this, what kind of binds this uh, new community of believers together is this shared understanding of who Jesus is and what his gospel is about. And what we find the early church doing is, is sort of rehearsing who Jesus is. Because we need to be, remember when Moses led the children of Israel out in the Exodus? Like the rest of the Old Testament, a lot of that can be summarized in one word. Remember. Remember what God did. Because it has all kinds of implications about what he's doing. And so that's what Christians did. They remembered this new exodus that Jesus was bringing them out of. A slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Right? And so they, they remind each other. They sing hymns one to another. Like old text, ancient texts will tell us. Regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because it's so easy to forget When your life is falling apart, you see your friends 
lives falling apart, family members, does it, does it feel like Jesus is in control? Does it feel like Jesus is saving? It, it doesn't always feel that way. We don't, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, 8, that we don't see everything subject under his feet yet. And so you, you look at your circumstances and you begin to wonder, like your five senses are telling you, maybe, maybe there are other powers in charge. And maybe I need to look elsewhere for salvation. This addiction or this idol over here or make sure I have a really good job or all these things that we could pursue, some of which are like, they can be regarded as good pursuits, but if they're, if they're seen as ultimate pursuits, right? well, then who's really the Lord and Savior now, right? And so it's, it's helpful to be reminded about who Jesus is and what he offers, he offers forgiveness, which is hard to remember, right? Because we think we have to make our lives work right, right? And we think when we fail, that's devastating. If we put all the burden on us to make our life work right, and then we fail, well, and then this is what Satan wants you to do. He tries to get you to fail and then to wallow in guilt and shame. Let's just keep you in that kind of spot, right? But, but Jesus, as the king, is saying, like, no, no. Religion is about what you do, right? But what I'm talking about is what I have already done on the cross, and it has all kinds of implications for you right now, right? Like, right where you've landed. You don't even have to stand up and brush yourself off. Save me, King Jesus, right? He offers you forgiveness, and not just forgiveness, but the power to change. Because what does he offer in his other hand? The power of the Holy Spirit. That's where change comes from. And, and that's hard to remember. Because right? I don't know about you guys, but sort of like there's this trick that happens in our mind. And spouses keep track of this sometimes. But it, it, it's like the, the way most of us have a particular way in which we fall or maybe a couple of ways in which we fall. And, and, so, and so when we fall again, it seems like in that moment, I mean, can anybody testify to this? Is you feel like there's been no progress, right? Because I fell in the same kind of way, right? But we're not noticing the big picture of how like, well, okay, yeah, but um, the frequency, the intensity, God has been delivering you from that, hasn't he? When you look back, you take a long Long view of, of, of things, right? And it's like, no, no, he's working. He's changing you by his Holy Spirit. And, and so these things we continually remind ourselves about because they're easy to forget, right? Because the world, our flesh, the, the kingdom of darkness is always telling you otherwise, That message is just constantly pumping out in the world. And so part of the reason we come together is to remember a, a, a feature, let's say, of a true church is that they continually pursue this shared understanding of who Jesus is 
and his gospel. But the other thing that they pursue is a shared life in Jesus. So again, in verse 42, I'm way ahead in my notes here. Okay. Verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, those, those last three pursuits, fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, right? I think they all kind of belong together. Actually, one way to think about it is that the breaking of bread and the, the prayers are, are both just kind of, they come under the umbrella of fellowship, this word fellowship which is used throughout the New Testament to talk about what we share in God, that God has given us these things that we share. Like, and God provides us with all kinds of things, like material things, and we'll talk about that here in a, in a little bit. But <clears throat> spiritual things also too. Spiritual blessings come from Christ. And there's several places in the New Testament that talk about what we share in Christ spiritually, and it uses this word fellowship. Like we... We receive grace and blessing through the gospel, uh, Philippians 1.7 talks about. We receive the cleansing of Jesus' blood in 1 John 1.7. We share in that. We fellowship in that. We are partakers, which is another way to uh, translate the word fellowship, of the divine nature in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. So actually, what, what we're being brought into, what we're sharing in, is in the very life of the triune God through Jesus The love that existed between the Father and the Son that existed for all of eternity. The life that courses between them in the sharing of the Holy Spirit. We're being brought into that life and fellowshipping with, sharing in the divine nature. Right? And actually, this is the goal of having a shared understanding of who Jesus is. The goal of the apostolic teaching is not just to like, okay, now I have these list of facts that the apostles have told me regarding Jesus. No, it's so that you might enter in to this shared life in Jesus. And this is exactly the point that the apostle John is making. For example, in 1 John 1.3, there he says, that which we, the apostles, he and the rest of the apostles, have seen, so if you look in the earlier verse 1 and 2, he's talking about the word of life that they have handled and touched. We're talking about Jesus now. They've seen and heard him in the flesh, his incarnation, after he was risen from the dead. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that, so here's the purpose of the apostolic witness, you may have fellowship. This is our word fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship, our shared life, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So the whole goal of the, reminding ourselves regarding the apostolic teaching is to be like, yeah, we're being invited into this shared life with God. And that is being offered to us as a community together, and we share it with one another. Now, the way in which this shared life is made manifest in a local church is in three ways in our passage. There's a shared meal, there's shared prayer and praise, and then there's also shared resources. Uh, there's a shared meal. It says in verse 42 that they, one of the things that they were devoting themselves to continuously was the breaking of bread. 
In verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So the, we're talking about these shared meals that they had. Jude talks about them in terms of love feasts. Now, it, it's true that they will culminate, they, they will find their climax in the communion. Right, where we remember Jesus' death, the breaking of the bread and, and the sharing of, of, of the cup. But it seems like it's, it's this whole meal. Uh, and that's significant because when you share a table, you share food, especially in the ancient Near East. Like you can share, you can, if there's not enough room in a Chick-fil-A and you see an open spot and there's a family already there, you, you could say, hey, do you mind if I like eat my food here? And that, that's probably okay. But in the ancient Near East, and somewhat with us today, when you share a meal together, that's not just filling your belly. That, that, that is also a, a declaration of unity. Like, we're together. We're on the same team, right? And so that's why the Pharisees are so upset with Jesus and who he eats with, right? Like, you, you're, you are making this declaration of unity with this prostitute, tax collector, Sinner? Like, what are you doing eating with these people? Right? And it's something that takes a while for even the early church to sort of get over, especially as it relates to Gentiles. Right? And you see kind of Peter flip-flopping on this point. Right? One of the things I love about the Bible in general and the New Testament is that the, the greatest of heroes, it, it, they're not immune to criticism, Right? Like, because it's not about them. Right? So the same Peter who denied Jesus and then like has, you know, he's preaching this first sermon. A little bit later, though, Paul has to say like, hey, how come you're no longer eating with the Gentiles, right? And he was like, well, because, ah, oh, man, like, you have to understand how I was brought up. And, and, and it's like, no, 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 this is, no, we are one. There's this declaration of unity. Why does Paul get so upset with the Corinthian church? And this is part of the reason why I think that communion was part of this maybe greater meal. Because how, like how are we supposed to get drunk on that little thimble of, well, especially us with a little thimble of grape juice. But like they're, they're getting drunk. They're like skipping line and like all this kind of stuff. And it's like he's, he's upset because they're acting like, this is 1 Corinthians 11, they're acting like this isn't a declaration. That's not a declaration of unity. Like when this person, he hasn't even eaten because you ate all the waffles? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a declaration of unity. So he's upset. Now, again, like I said, the, the climax of this meal, though, is remembering Jesus' death. And, and what's being communicated there is, is look, the, the unity that we share, that we are representing by sharing in this meal, is, is more than just like, hey, we have agreed to tolerate each other. It's, it's more than that. It's founded on Jesus' death. And this is exactly what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? Here again, this is the word translated fellowship in our passage. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, fellowship, shared life in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. 
for we all partake of the one bread. Right? So the basis, so they're, they're part of the expression of how they're saying, look, we have a shared life in Jesus. We're one in Jesus is to have this meal that communicates our oneness is actually founded on who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross. So it's a gospel-centered community because that's what brings us together. And that's one of the most beautiful things about the local church. Let's see. Sunday morning is the most racially divided hour in our country. And that is such a shame because of this. You can't manufacture it. See, if you, if you, if you aim at unity, you're going to miss unity. It, but if you proclaim Christ and welcome everybody, then this beautiful picture will emerge that is supposed to, it's supposed to be a window of what the kingdom of God will be like in the future. Who's there? Every nation, every tribe confessing that Jesus is Lord, right? And so our, that's all. You, so when you look at the makeup of a local church, again, you can't manufacture it, but you should be concerned if everybody looks the same, everybody makes the same, about the same amount of pay, like, What's really holding this together then? Um, but the shared meal it's a, equalizes everything. Right? There's no longer slave nor free, male or female, Jew or Greek. All one in Jesus Christ represented in this shared meal. So that, that's one of the things that communicates this shared life in Jesus. Another thing is this, this, the shared prayer and praises, right? In verse 42, one of the things they're devoting themselves to are the prayers. And I don't know if there were specific prayers in there that they recited or exactly the nature of all that. I don't know. But it tells us in verse 46 and verse 47 that they would go to the temple. Um, if you look in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, they're going to the temple during the hour of what? Hour of prayer, that's when they're going. Maybe that's what they're doing. Going to the temple during the hour of prayer. Also in their homes. And in their homes, what do they do? Verse 47, they praise. So one of the features of our shared life together in Jesus are prayers and praise. That we would come together, talk to God in humble dependence. That's, what's, that's what prayer is. That we would worship God together with thankful hearts. And there's something that happens when we do that. Uh, if, you, if you ever go to, go to Mo on Monday nights, one of the things, okay, we have a shared meal. We, we, we literally look over the apostles' teaching, right? We share life, and then we pray. And there is something that happens. When we're praying, the unity that it, it's, it's uh, I'm trying to describe it in words, but you, I, I can't really. Like, if there's something that happens that, that, that binds us together in this kind of mysterious kind of way. For, for those who were at the entrance of Emmanuel Hospital on Thursday night, when we were praying on behalf of Carlton, we were holding each other's hands, singing praises, praying to God on behalf of Carlton. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a oneness 
that you feel, and it, it, I don't know how to describe it. It's like it resonates. Your, your, your heart kind of goes like, yep, this is what I'm made for. This is what I'm made for, right? And you get that sense, right? And that's part of that life that we're being, we're, we're being invited into. So one of the manifestations is the shared meal, the shared prayers and praises, but also the sharing of resources. In verse 44 and verse 45, it says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This word in common is actually related to the word translated fellowship in verse 42. They shared all things in common, and then in verse uh, 45, and they were selling their possessions. Some of you are getting, I see sweat on your brow. They, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this shared life was compelling them. Right? They're, they're, they're doing this with joy, by the way. And when they, we'll see in Acts 5, like one person who like wanted to play the religious game, but his heart wasn't in it doesn't go well, okay? But, but they, they, they are compelled to share with one another materially, like to care for one another in that kind of, a, uh, kind of a way, right? And this gave them, like they had a different relationship to their possessions. I don't think that the early church like gave up on the idea of like private property. They, they met in private homes, but they have a different relationship to their possessions, no, no, no longer clinching it with closed fists. They're just, they're holding it out with, with open hands. And they're saying, God, you're, you're the ones, you gave this to me. What, where do you want it to go? What do you want to, what do you want to do with it? Now, what's interesting in the New Testament is that this word fellowship is often, it's, it's often used in the context of sharing uh, so that you might meet the need of, of somebody, right? And I think this is very important to God because it communicates the gospel, right? God, the, the benefactor, he gives his son for our need, right? And so when we give towards someone else's need, that's a way in which we proclaim the gospel. It's interesting when you look at um, Paul, right? And he, he goes to the apostles in the book of Galatians, and he's like, okay, this, this is what I've been preaching about Jesus, is this what you've been preaching about Jesus? And they're like, yes, we are preaching the same thing about Jesus. Like, whoo, that's good, because otherwise all I'm doing is in vain, right? But they, okay, yeah, we're saying the same thing. And they're like, that's good. Just, hey, remember the poor, he says in Galatians chapter 2, 20, uh, 2 10, right? He says, remember the poor, right? And which he said, I was very eager to do, Paul says, right? Why? It's, it's important because it's another way to proclaim the gospel for us to take care of the needs of others, because that's what God does most profoundly and, and, the, and, the, and the best, most foundational way through Jesus Christ. Right? But that's being pictured right, when we care for the needs, needs of others. Now, when I talk about this shared life, I feel, I'll just talk for myself, there's a couple of emotions that come up. One is, and... Isn't this what we so deeply long for? 
So that's happening on one side. And isn't it simultaneously what we are most horrified about? Because that's a lot of vulnerability. That, that, that opens yourself up to a lot, like I might be taken advantage of. And I don't, I cut people off because you know how, I mean, you know how much I was hurt in my past? I'm not trusting any of you guys, right? And, but, but we're being, but here's the thing, look, um, and one of the things that we do to kind of like, like how, how can we have one foot in, one foot out? And I don't think that we do this intentionally, and I've done it myself, is that we complain about the lack of it. Like we, we say like, man, I really wish we had that, that shared life. And we think that in the complaining of it and the talking about it, that we're somehow embracing it without embracing the dangers of it, right? But I think what, what, what God is inviting us into is, like, what, what about these small risks to enter into that shared life? And what I'm beginning to see here at Enclave, it's very, very powerful. Seeing some of you take some of these small risks into that shared life. And, the, and you're, you're testifying to the power of it. But here's the thing about this. It is where joy is found. It is where satisfaction is found. But if you dare to do that, you take those risks, you're going to get a target on your back. Because here's the other thing that I've noticed. I, I'm, I'm, I'm testifying of what I'm seeing happening here is that the kingdom of darkness hates it. Because our enemy knows that if we engage in something like this, for one, our testimony to the outside world will speak volumes because this is what everyone is longing for. So he hates that. But then he also knows that we will be satisfied with it. So that we will no longer think like, like sin and idolatry becomes less shiny. It's not because we're like, ah, I, gotta, I gotta really try not to, it's more like, oh, no, I, I found something better, right? And we'll be compelled by that. So it'll be harder to tempt us, harder to lead us astray. And so the enemy hates the shared life. For one, it represents who God is in the fellowship of the Trinity. So he hates that too. But this is, but this is what we're being invited into. This shared life together. And, and, and if God, if you just go, if you open yourself up to God and say, I don't, I don't know how to do that. God, just show me. What's the next, what's just like the next step into that shared life? And maybe it's just sharing something vulnerable with somebody beside me. Sharing a meal. These small little things that, that have this, I, I, I can testify to this. It will have this cumulative effect over time. And, and your community will begin to grow. And if you're vulnerable and you share your sins, your failures, all these things, your, your concerns... It will begin to grow, and you will be fulfilled, and you will also be attacked by the enemy. But it is worth it. It is so worth it. 
What is a church? A church is a community where a shared understanding of Jesus and a shared life in Jesus is continually pursued. Let's pray together. Father, when we look at what you're calling us into, um, it honestly feels a little bit scary and vulnerable. Father, would, would you help us trust you? Would you heal us of past hurts that might be getting in the way? Lord, would you show us just the, what's the next thing you want to empower us to do to enter into this shared life? We need your help, God. We don't know how to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.